Hi, this is Pastor Emily McGinley from Urban Village Church, Hyde Park, Woodlawn. If you've been to UVC, you'll know that we seek to be three things, bold, inclusive, and relevant. We know that there are countless folks across the country and out there in podcast land like yourself, seeking a message that will bring insight, hope, encouragement, and joy as we do this thing called faith. Please consider making a financial gift to help us with this work of inspiring, equipping, and sending out agents of gospel life and inclusive love. Just go to www.urbanvillagechurch.org forward slash give. Thanks for listening and God bless. Hello, friends. Our scripture passage is Psalm 83 from the Common English Bible. God, don't be silent. Don't be quiet or sit still, God. Because look, your enemies are growling. Those who hate you are acting arrogantly. They concoct crafty plans against your own people. They plot against the people you favor. Come on, they say. Let's wipe them out as a nation. Let the name Israel be remembered no more. They plot with a single-minded heart. They make a covenant against you. They are the clans of Edom and the Ishmaelites, Moab and the Hagrites, Gebal, Ammon, Amalek, Philistia, along with the citizens of Tyre. Assyria, too, has joined them. They are the strong arm for Lot's children. Do to them what you did to Midian, to Sisera, and to Jabin at the Kishon River. They were destroyed at Endor. They became fertilizer for the ground. Make their officials like Oreb and Zeb, all their princes like Ziba and Zamuna. Those who said, let's take God's pastures for ourselves. My God, make them like tumbleweeds, like chaff blown by the wind, just like a fire consumes a forest, just like flames set mountains ablaze. Pursue them with your storm, terrify them with your hurricane. Cover their faces with shame, Lord, so that they might seek your name. Let them be shamed and terrified forever. Let them die in disgrace. Let them know that you, your name is the Lord. You alone are most high over all the earth. May God add a blessing to our understanding of scripture. Um, let's pray together. God, we give you thanks uh, for the gift that it is to come together, um, even through the storm and maybe especially through the storms, not only um, the ones that show up on a Sunday morning, but the storms that show up um, on a Saturday night or a Wednesday night or a Tuesday afternoon, the storms of life. And so um, as we gather here in this space, um, I ask we, inv- ask, we invite your spirit to move freely throughout each one of our hearts and minds pour into us um, not only what we might need for this week, uh, but for a lifetime. And that what you do here in this space at this time might sow seeds uh, for new life, new possibility, fruit that we can't even imagine um, down the road. We pray all of this with gratitude and in Jesus' name. Amen. So when I was a kid, uh, I used to see this bumper sticker um, on different cars. And it said, if you're not outraged, you're not paying attention. And as a 10-year-old living in like a medium-sized town, I had no idea what this was about. Why was I supposed to be so angry? What was I supposed to be angry about? And I didn't really begin to sort of understand until after college. In fact, not until I was in seminary. And I'm sorry to say that I think that the church was, in some way, responsible for my developmental delay in this area. The brand of Christianity that I came out of didn't really encourage things like critical engagement of history or social justice issues. 
and kind of reduced uh, the Apostle Paul's discussion of powers and principalities um, to the purely spiritual realm and had no intersection with the um, existence of the systems and structures of oppression that we exist in um, today. Well, these days, I know what, what the bumper sticker wants me to be angry about, um, and I have a better sense of, of why that is. Um, in the 80s and 90s, there was this guy named Newt Gingrich, who was a major political player in the Republican Party. Uh, that's for all you millennial babies. Um, and he was coaching Republican candidates, um, especially in the 80s and early 90s, um, who were trying to win office. And he would make these videos and audio tapes um, for these folks who were trying to win, to help them win the way that he had, and was successfully building the Republican majority that way. And one of the things that he would tell folks to do was to consciously use specific words and phrases that would polarize the political debate, he, uh, that would get people really angry. Uh, he, the recommended words from these tapes, the recommended words that the candidates were encouraged to use um, as often as possible when referring to Democrats included words like sick, Traitors, corrupt, bizarre, cheat, steal, devour, self-serving, and criminal rights. There's documentation of this. These were the words that he would use to cultivate anger among the conservative and Republican base. But of course, cultivating anger is not exclusive to the Republican Party or conservatives, right? You can find it just as easily in Democrats and the progressive end of the spectrum, um, except when the left does it, it's usually to cultivate outrage at the rich or at big business. We've heard lots of that uh, these, the last year, right? So maybe the keywords would include things like greedy and Wall Street and, I don't know, but you know what I'm talking about. They're out there and we've heard them before and we have sh we're surely hearing them right now. Uh, both sides want to cultivate anger because Anger is actually a really strong motivator. Getting someone angry means that you have tapped into something that people care about. And the measure of their anger is proportionate to the measure of how much they care about whatever thing is being threatened, right? So if we take just a few of Newt Gingrich's um, word list, uh, it'll kind of make sense. So sick means that health is under threat, even that there's some level of like perversion that's at work, right? Traitor, cheat, and steal means that trust has been broken in like a really dirty way. Criminal rights suggests that there is a lack of care for victims. And in fact, maybe even that there is an elevation of criminals over victims. Through this lens, it's easy to see why people hearing those words would get upset, right? I mean... What's under attack is common decency and the things that we hope for in society, right? What's at stake is the quality of our souls. It's a righteous anger, an anger about our goodness and virtue being under attack. Well, as I studied and meditated on Psalm 83 this week, I hear kind of an ancient version of this same tactic. Israel saying, hey God, these people, your enemies, a.k.a. our enemies, right, uh, are being arrogant and plotting against us the people that you love. And these enemies are proposing genocide. Come on, they say. Let's wipe them out as a nation. Let the name of Israel be remembered no more. Israel is afraid, but even more than that, they're angry. They're angry that these people, the clans of Edom and the Ishmaelites, would not only dare to step to them, but they would step to God's own people. So they ask God, demand that God, would rain down terror on them and cover them completely in shame and disgrace. 
And I have to admit, if I wasn't reading this very closely, I'd be like, blah, 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 more Old Testament, like, militarism, whatever. But then I looked again at who they were angry about, uh, angry with the Edomites and the Ishmaelites. And when I saw that, I knew that this is not just any old generic beef, right? This is way back stuff that goes deep. Allow me to explain. So if you're familiar with early Bible stories, you're probably familiar with two stories in particular. The first one is the story of Abraham. And Abraham was this wealthy guy who pretty much had everything that he wanted except for one thing, children. His wife Sarai was barren, and he was grieved by this because it basically meant that he had no one to pass the family legacy onto. It was just going to end with him, right? And so maybe he want, maybe not only that, but he also just wanted to have like a kid to call his own. So anyway, God approaches Abraham and is like, yo, if you do what I ask, if you leave your place and go where I direct, I will make you the father of a nation and the number of descendants that you have will be as many as there are stars in the sky, right? God has tapped into Abraham's sweet spot. So Abraham is like, you're singing my song. Heck yeah, right? But, you know, Abraham is like a thousand years old and Sarai is no spring chicken either. But they head out, they leave everything, right? And they go under God's guidance. But there's a sticking point. Abraham and Sarai keep trying to get pregnant, but it's not taking. So Sarai's feeling the pressure, and she comes up with this idea to have Abraham impregnate her servant girl, Hagar. So fast forward through legalized rape, and Hagar's got a bun in the oven. But then Sarai gets jealous and casts her out. So Hagar is super pregnant, sitting by a river, trying to figure out, like, what's her next move, right? When an angel comes to her and says, hey, girl, uh, I know your situation seems sort of not great right now, but I'm here to tell you that God's got you. Go back to camp and trust in me. God's got a promise for you, too. So Hagar returns to Abraham's household and gives birth to a son named Ishmael. And while he's still Abraham's son, he's less legitimate than Isaac, the son that Abraham and Sarah eventually have. Think Jon Snow to Rob Stark, if that's at all helpful. <laughs> so in case it's not obvious, the Ishmaelites are the descendants of Ishmael, right? And you can sort of guess like, how the animosity developed from there. So then there's also the Edomites. So back to the Abraham story. Abraham has these two sons. But Isaac is the legitimate one, right? So that's the, where the legacy goes. And then Isaac has two sons, twins of his own, uh, Jacob and Esau. Esau's the older one, but Jacob is the smarter one. And he's his mom's favorite. So as Isaac grows old, he decides, okay, you know, my life is coming to an end. It's time for me to pass on the inheritance, right, to Esau. And so uh, his wife, Rachel, though, has other plans. And she essentially coaches Jacob on how to steal this inheritance, um, which he does, and then he, like, runs away immediately. Well, Jacob and Esau later end up having a truce, but Esau's people are furious, right? And the descendants are called, dun-dun-dun, the Edomites. So, back to Psalm 83. The Israelites, the chosen ones, the ones who enjoy this inheritance, however many generations later, some might call a dirty inheritance stolen. Some people, but not the Israelites. And here they are tugging on God's ill ear. Kill them. Destroy them. Cover them in shame and let them die in disgrace. And if you're only getting Israel's side of the story, but you know this backstory, which turns out like Israel's the one who recorded, right? And preserved and passed on. I mean, 
Am I the only one who's like a little bit hesitant to pick up a pitchfork and join the protest? From my perspective, it seems like the Edomites and the Ishmaelites kind of have a pretty good reason to be wanting to start something, or at least finish something, right, with Israel. So everyone's angry, and that anger isn't just blind fury. It's rooted in legitimate reasons and hurt, right, pain. The Israelites are angry because they feel like they and their God are under attack. The Ishmaelites are mad because Hagar got screwed by the system. And the Edomites are resentful because Esau got robbed, right? Everyone is angry for a good reason. Knowing this history is crucial to really understand in understanding what's going on, right? But it also raises some really difficult questions. So does God take sides? Aren't the Edomites and the Ishmaelites God's people too? If God is really God, wouldn't God get the complexities of what's going on? So here's the thing about anger. Anger feels powerful. It feels powerful. And it easily gets mixed up with all kinds of self-righteousness, right? It's hard for me to think of an instance when I've been angry and didn't feel like I was right. And so maybe that's the limitation of anger, right? Wanting to win. But like I said earlier, anger also means that you really care about something, right? That you're invested in some way. Israel really cared about this promise that God had made to them and their ancestors. They had invested a lot, actually everything, into this promise. But then it also got mixed up with this desire to win, right? To dominate, you know, cover them in shame. You know, that's that's totally unnecessary, right? So they ignore this inconvenient history. Israel, everyone actually has a choice, right? Reconciliation or retribution. This past week, we began um, our summer starting point small group. Uh, Vania kind of mentioned that in her testimony. Um, She was in it last year. Uh, Our topic for the discussion um, was grace, and as always, the conversation was really rich. And as we talked more about God's grace and its implications, one person shared a thought that I think probably most of us have had at least once or twice. This person um, had journeyed toward a more inclusive and critical engagement of social justice issues and faith kind of lens, and they admitted that it was kind of hard for them to admit or believe that God's grace could be just as available and just as abundant for people who were less inclusive and less critical. The thought that these people who seem so closed off and unthoughtful, people, let's be clear, who this person is related to and also used to be like, right? That those people could also access God's uh, grace and deserve it as much as they did, that somehow made them feel really uncomfortable and felt sort of unfair somehow. And so, again, we're faced with this choice, right? Retribution or reconciliation. Two choices, but only one that leads to God's vision of wholeness of life for all, which is reconciliation, in case you were hoping it was the other one. (laughs) I know, it's annoying, right? So then how do we get from here to there? So it's okay for the poet to want to blow off steam. But I can't help but wonder if God is kind of standing to the side waiting for an opportunity to be like, Hey, buddy, you better check yourself before you wreck yourself, right? I love this passion that you have for me and all that, um, but I think your energy might be better redirected from retribution to reconciliation because while they might not have the inheritance, those people's anger is valid. And as it turns out, the Edomites and Ishmaelites are my people too, maybe not enjoying the same specific promise that you have. 
but it doesn't mean that they don't have a relationship with me in some way, right? Maybe another way to think about this is just because I say Israelite lives matter, I never said that Edomite and Ishmaelite lives don't matter, right? So annoying. But what if the poet isn't angry about um, the Edomites and Ishmaelites? Maybe, you know, let's like pause that, you know, uh, family feud right there. What if the poet is actually angry at God? What if the poet is like, hey man, you said that we were your chosen ones, but look at this. All these people are banding together to destroy us. How am I supposed to trust you and believe what my ancestors said about you when this is happening? So I just read the book Night, uh, which was written by the recently deceased human rights activist um, Ellie Wiesel. Wiesel Wiesel was a deeply spiritual person um, as a youth, and he would would even cry. He was like 13 years old. He would cry when he recited the prayers, Um, and he wanted to become a mystic. He entered the Auschwitz uh, concentration camp when he was 15 years old. He lied and said he was 18 so that he wouldn't get placed with children. And he somehow made it through and survived. He was actually 18 when he got out. He saw terrible things happen. This book, Night, is kind of his account of that. He experienced terrible things himself. He let his father die just a few feet away from him while calling his name. His father was calling his name, and he never went to him. He saw live babies thrown into an incinerator. Terrible things that can't be unseen. Terrible knowledge that can't be unknown. And you read his story and you think, who are you, God? Where are you? How could this be your very own people, the people that you made a promise to, and this is happening to him? And so many soldiers, overseers of death, foremen of cruelty, they, after the war, they just went on to live kind of happily ever after lives, except for the people at the very top, right? I think it's right to be angry with God. I don't know if I'm supposed to say that, but I will anyway, because I think it's right to be angry with God when things like that happen, when atrocities like that existed, but also are existing today, right? What do we do with this kind of anger? What do we do with that kind of anguish, right, that this sort of stirs up? Uncomfortable questions. Well, I have a terribly unsatisfying answer for you. I don't know. (laughs) I don't know what we do with this kind of anger toward God. I think we could work toward forgiveness of God, but actually, you know, I was thinking about it. I'm not sure that God is actually looking for forgiveness from us, Um, or even if that matters. I think think God does want to be in relationship with us, But I wonder if God would rather have us be in relationship with one another. Like, somehow, kind of like the way Vania kind of talked about it in her testimony, somehow our relationship with one another is the truest vehicle, the closest approximation that we have to a relationship with God. The prophet Isaiah speaks for God in this way. What should I think about all of your sacrifices, says the Lord? I'm fed up with entirely burnt offerings. Stop bringing worthless offerings. Your incense repulses me. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Help the oppressed. Defend the orphan. Plead for the widow. In other words, I think, God is saying, your attempts at a personal relationship don't matter when your relationships with one another, and especially the most vulnerable among you, are disgusting. 
stop looking at me and start looking at one another. Which is not a very churchy kind of message, actually, <laughs> in some ways. Um, but maybe somehow I think the anger that we, point, we might point toward God doesn't matter as much as the love that we embody for one another. And I'm entering into Job's territory and probably doing a worse job of it. But I think that this is kind of how Elie Wiesel like, dealt with his pain, the pain of his experience. I mean, his entire life was marked by that, those three years of his um, incarceration. He dedicated his life to shedding light on places and circumstances and situations um, and people uh, where the world, that the world had turned its back on. Even if he had his own shortcomings, which is a whole other conversation for another day. And he somehow remained a person of faith. There's this quote that's attributed to St. Augustine. Hope has two beautiful daughters. Their names are anger and courage. Anger at the way things are and courage to see that they do not remain as they are. Anger means we care that things matter, that we're willing to commit ourselves to values and a vision, and in some way be, vul- be made vulnerable for that, right? But here's the thing about anger. An orphaned anger, a motherless anger, will gut you. Anger without hope will burn you up and leave a pile of ashes where you once stood. Anger will give you boldness to stand on the front lines and take the hits. Anger will fuel you to step out in ways and circumstances that will keep the movement going. But anger, anger without mother hope, will leave you feeling used up and discarded. Anger without sister courage will leave you feeling overwhelmed, depressed, and alone. We talked about courage last week, right? Courage is security in the knowledge that God will provide. Strength to keep moving forward, even in circumstances of fear. Solidarity with others trying to walk a difficult path. Anger and courage. Courage to face the humbling mess of our histories and anger enough to do right for our future. Anger enough at what has been to try different with our enemies. Courage enough to seek reconciliation, to set aside my rightness for the possibility of our togetherness. Anger and courage, the children of hope. Hope that we can be different. Hope that things can be better. Hope that God's vision of wholeness of life for all isn't just a pretty thought, right? But a truth and a reality waiting to be realized. Let's pray. God, we give you thanks for Mother Hope. We give you thanks for Sister Courage. And we give you thanks for anger even when it's hard, even when it's uncomfortable, even when it makes us question you and your love and your presence, we thank you. Because we know that you, these are all gifts that you have granted to us, that you have given us the freedom to choose whether or not we'll do different with our enemies, choose whether or not we'll do right for our future. And so we pray for the things that help us to make that choice, the choice toward reconciliation even if it costs us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.